0: Hey folks, welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast. Our topic today is vitamin D, vitamin D deficiency, and the COVID-19 pandemic. My guests are Dr. Linda Benskin, a nurse researcher and wound specialist. Her independent research is on wound healing in remote and conflict areas in the tropics. She is currently in Jamaica, running a randomized controlled trial on improvised wound dressing. And Gareth Davis, known as Gruff who has a bachelor's in physics and a PhD in medical physics from Imperial College. He's best known as an entrepreneur, software engineer, and an expert in data analysis and machine learning. He has consulted for the NHS. Let's have a listen. Linda, Gruff, welcome to the Dark Horse podcast. I'm so glad to have you here. You are experts in a topic that is rapidly becoming very important to me and many others who are interested in addressing our COVID situation. Vitamin D is the topic. Now, as I understand it, the two of you have collaborated now, but you did not know each other at the beginning of the pandemic. How did you, uh, how did you find each other?
1: Well, originally, I believe it was because Linda wrote an incredible review early on in the pandemic of all of the available research. And she cited a publication, a preprint, publication that I'd collaborated on with two doctors here in London um, and I believe that's when we first in, uh, met each other because I, I think I probably wrote to you to say thank you and how amazing the, the, the review was compared to um, the reviews that the UK government was not <laughs> doing. <laughs> so.
2: Yeah that, uh, that review came out of a frustration of over and over again, public health officials saying there's just not enough evidence to make a decision about vitamin D, and this was in uh, already in May. I was writing this article because it was so clear that the evidence was already overwhelming in May of 2020, and so uh, I came across uh, Gruff's um, causal inference model, and then another uh, causal model using Hill's criteria, which is well established and accepted. Uh, by Dr. Boucher, which was um, a a model that uh, was used to prove that smoking causes cancer because that has the same ethical dilemma of doing randomized controlled trials that vitamin D has. You can't really do a randomized controlled trial if you really believe that smoking causes cancer and force half the people in your group to smoke and the other half to not smoke. In the same way, if you really believe that vitamin D deficiency is causing people to die of COVID-19, you can't tell half of the group that you're studying, you are not permitted to have any vitamin D supplements. And yeah, you know, we're just going to relegate you to the group that we think is going to die. So... Um, the, uh, Ruff's model was a, a really interesting one as well. And then I believe he probably from there hooked me into, uh, this ad hoc, uh, email list that had about, um, probably at this point 50 experts from around the world who, uh, just share articles and, and insights and information. And that, that group has continued to this day. Um, uh, we send the emails to each other every few days with the latest research that we've found. And uh, from there, when they started the vitamin D for all letter uh, I feel like one of my gifts is to be able to make things more succinct and more understandable, more readable. Uh, So I, I distilled down uh, research into something that's more distinct, more, more readable and, and so I helped smooth over and helped with the editing
1: on that letter.
0: And can you uh, tell the audience what that letter is?
1: So, yeah. Rob, you want to? So, say, um, <laughs> I think it's uh, worth bringing it up so that I don't um, forget the details. But yeah, so, it's called
2: um, it's vitaminDforall dot org dot
1: org exactly. Yeah. so I, not so, dot, dot net dot com uh, dot org. Um, and we, uh, we had done for all with the, the number, but it's, uh, it's spelled out all those letters. Uh, and it's a call from scientists and doctors uh, around the world. We were very selective. We didn't just try and get as many signatures as possible. We went specifically to the most reputable uh, eminent professors, doctors, PhDs, many of both uh, medical doctors and PhDs, um, because we wanted to uh, emphasise that the evidence is not just um, incredibly large, but is believed by people who have strong reputations as scientists. Uh, And we acquired, I think, 220 signatures in the end, and we decided to stop looking after that. Um, And we have, um, uh, including David Sinclair, who's one of the world's top 50 most influential scientists, uh, was one of the last signatures. And the point of that letter was to... Appeal of uh, really a call to action to government, health agencies, uh, and um, uh, anyone working in healthcare to take vitamin D seriously, look at the evidence, uh, and present the evidence both for the efficacy of vitamin D in treating COVID, which is very strong, uh, and also the safety of vitamin D at the levels that we're recommending because uh, we found that certain um, agents, health agencies particularly, kept promoting uh, a message of a very low amount of vitamin D which is suitable for bone health but which is, uh, won't do anything for immune function.
0: And, of course, the response to your letter is that um, health – agencies across the world embraced this and are now recommending high doses of vitamin D Wouldn't and of that course be wonderful? the harm of the <laughs> pandemic has been greatly reduced by these yes. increased levels of so, vitamin D, especially in the temperate zones where people are chronically vitamin D deficient. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, that is not the case. Uh, <laughs> I think, uh, uh, unfortunately, possibly Ireland is one of the few countries that, may, that looks like it's taking things seriously. We were, I mean, from the beginning, from March uh, when we started campaigning because people around the world there were a number of scientists and and doctors around the world who had enough information and could synthesise or understand the data well enough to see what was was to me almost as clear as a colour in the data I'm very experienced at interpreting data and I can um, and I saw something it was just blindingly obvious and as a physicist I think the problem with statistics especially medical statistics is it teaches correlation isn't causation, but it doesn't tell you what causation is. So of course, you know, in physics, we don't have randomized controlled trials to, to do work on astronomy, for example. You can't do, do a trial on a on a distant star. So we're, we're very used to working with different methods of inferring cause.
0: Um, So I uh, would, I will just say for, for my audience, they are well familiar with Heather and my frustration at the idea that the only kind of scientifically reliable inference comes from randomized controlled trials. And there are really two problems with this. One, randomized controlled trials, if they are done well, do provide a high quality kind of evidence. Yeah. But they can, of course, be done poorly. And they can give you false confidence in something because they are subject to systematic biases. And the second thing uh, is that most of what we know about the universe did not come through a randomized controlled trial. There are ethical concerns, as Linda points out. You can't assign people to smoke if you believe that it's likely harmful. So randomized controlled trial is out of the question there are historical inferences that one must make in evolution it's very hard uh, to look at the you know the radiation of extinct species let's say with with randomized controlled trial this is not how we learned about plate tectonics it's not how we learned about newtonian physics the the fact is randomized controlled trials are a luxury that requires great care to properly derive inference from them but we are not uh, scientifically hobbled by their absence. And so when you say you're expert in, uh, in the question of, uh, inference, what you're really saying is that you see something in the evidence that is unambiguous and for some reason, you and did you say something more than two hundred signatories to your? By, yeah,
1: by the end of uh, by the by the beginning of this year, I suppose it was early January. We were a bit late publishing it. We were hoping to get it out, but it took a long time to to get there. So, um, but by the by the beginning, I think, or the end of January this year, we had two hundred and twenty signatures, and it went to it went to you know we we got it seen at senior levels in governments around the world including the uk and it has almost entirely been ignored
0: so i i want to uh, unpack this a little bit it is likely true that people who have not got a lot of familiarity with vitamin d as i did not until covid i thought okay i understand that this is a vitamin it's probably A cofactor in certain processes. It's probably uh, something that most of us get enough of in our food and maybe you're a little bit deficient and so some supplementation is necessary. I was aware that it was produced in the skin uh, due to exposure to sunlight. I was probably uh, concerned that because I know it's a fat-soluble vitamin and fat-soluble vitamins are famously more dangerous than water-soluble vitamins because one could uh, take too much um that one has to be cautious about supplementation and all of these things and the more i have looked into the literature the more i have realized that my model here was way off and that that was misleading me now it's possible that health authorities were misled in this way and it is possible also that their caution about vitamin d in light of these many signatories to this letter could be about the danger vitamin D. In other words, if vitamin D overdose was a significant risk, you can imagine public health authorities advising uh, nothing or advising against supplementation because the the risk could be greater than the benefit. What is the, the case with respect to vitamin D toxicity and any reason to be cautious about administering it?
2: Yeah, I actually uh, address that rather directly in my more recent uh, paper. So I did the basic review and that was published. Finally, I I submitted the first iteration of that on May 13th of 2020. I just got through looking it up and it wasn't published until September. Uh, There were a lot of reasons for that. Some of them rather nefarious, but um,
0: September of what year?
2: 2020. So it took it took about four months for it to go through the uh, usually very rapid peer review process at Frontiers in Public Health. So then, after that basic review was published uh, by this year in about May or June, I was starting to sense that that we really needed another review uh, because we were getting uh, systematic reviews. But as you know, systematic reviews only take the best of the best of the research publications. And they don't take into account the big problem with vitamin D having publication bias. So they don't include anything that's a preprint. And I wanted to do another review of all the evidence for vitamin D. But this time, I was looking at the evidence only that was causal, or that was my big emphasis. I did uh, uh, tables of evidence for Review papers, meta analyses, and systematic analyses, and for uh, causal evidence. And that's, and and that was where I was going with it. But I put a big emphasis at the beginning of that chapter on the uh, whole issue of how you get vitamin D and the fact that toxicity is not really an issue. So at this point, looking at your public health officials. And what they should know about vitamin D by now, a year ago, Hamlin's razor might have applied, but at this point, I think there's no excuse for their ignorance. I think that at this point, we have to say that public health officials who are still not recommending vitamin D are intentionally ignorant, or worse.
0: So uh, this, this is extre- this is yeah. an extremely uh, inflammatory accusation. Now, I know. Because I have been tracking the very same question that the degree to which public health authorities fail to recommend that which works and continue to recommend things that either do not work or are risky, that it, if you start with the model of public health authorities, let's say we've got three different models public health authorities are basically competent and they're doing as well as they can in light of an emerging situation public health authorities are incompetent and they are doing as well as they can which isn't very well at all or public health authorities are actively doing that which prolongs the pandemic and causes uh COVID to continue to spread actually the third model is the most predictive it is surprising I can't imagine why anyone would want this. And I am continually looking for that sign that in fact, this is at, you know, it would be better if it was incompetence, because at least we can do something about that. The problem is incompetence just doesn't explain it. And vitamin D to me is the obvious proof of this, because when you look into uh, the truth of vitamin D, as is beautifully presented in your most recent paper, which I have here uh it turns out that the fears that we might have about vitamin d are ill-founded they are in fact based on an over extrapolation of what happens with vitamin a right vitamin a which is fat soluble and we all learn in biology that in fact hypervitaminosis a is a possibility there's a famous case in which an explorer ate nothing but uh polar bear uh, liver, too much yeah. polar bear liver and the yeah. soles of his feet fell off. And so anyway, <laughs> this is an example that is used to tell people that uh, fat soluble vitamins have to be treated with care. What is the I truth? Think of? The,
2: yeah, I think the good counter to that is the example that's in my paper of the dairy up in the Boston area where the uh, dairy accidentally was fortifying their milk with 525 times the amount of vitamin D that they thought they were, that they anticipated giving and putting in the milk. So for two years, the people who were purchasing milk from this dairy were drinking milk that had this huge amount of vitamin D in it, just like I said, way more than what they possibly should be getting.
0: And did any and of them had, survive?
2: And in fact, they had zero deaths. They had only 19 people who were symptomatic for vitamin D. In that entire period of time, a Boston emergency room finally kind of connected the dots because people started having kidney stone kind of issues. And as soon as they figured out the problem, the dairy was notified, the customers were notified, people stopped taking so much vitamin D. And the only fatality that resulted from the entire incident was one particular patient whose doctor prescribed high doses of prednisone. To counteract the vitamin D, rather than just uh, doing some more modest measures, and the person died of a massive infection from immunosuppression from the prednisone, which the jury said had absolutely nothing to do with the vitamin D. Yeah.
1: Now, I think for the vast majority of people, it's. Ex- extremely hard to overdose on vitamin D. It's a carefully regulated part of the uh, immune system. And of course, there are plenty of enzymes that start ramping up to get rid of it if you have too much. Because we produce it, not a vitamin, we produce it in our skin in certain uh, bands of UV light, which you get at most of the you know, sort of peak summertime. Um, and of course, Half an hour of uh, summer sunshine in the middle of the day, full body sunshine will generate about ten thousand international units of vitamin d uh, it 's not linear, so you don 't keep doing ten thousand every half an hour it steadies off but you know we 've evolved over millions and millions of years. most animals all animals as far as I know, uh, have vitamin D receptors and, and produce uh, mammals certainly all produce vitamin D um and uh, and so our bodies know how to deal with it it's uh, it's because we produce it in the skin it's not like vitamin a where you take it in through food um, and it's actually the only vitamin a i believe is the toxic uh, fat soluble vitamin it was assumed that d e a and k would all be accrued like that but in fact it's only vitamin a that get, that is really dangerous
0: this is fascinating so vitamin a is Uh, The exception, not the rule. The fact that vitamin D is fat soluble is irrelevant to the question of overdose. And I learned from you both in our uh, preliminary conversation that basically there is a mechanism that maintains a healthy equilibrium in an individual that is producing enough vitamin D, which is not most of us in light of the effect that modern life has on our encounter with the sun. But the point is, were you to take too much, it's not that you would be stuck with it. There is a disassembly mechanism, just as there is a synthesis yeah. mechanism.
2: In fact, that, that that disassembly mechanism can create a lot of problems for randomized control trials, and uh, for interpretation of data in general. And I think that is innocent, that a lot of people have misinterpreted uh, bolus doses. So a lot of times for these trials, there's a famous study in Brazil uh, during COVID-19 in which they wanted to show whether or not vitamin D would help with seriously ill uh, hospitalized COVID-19 patients. And my area of expertise there is, is evaluating the study design of researches to find out how they should appropriately be applied. And and this particular study design was a rather poor one because they gave vitamin D extremely late and they gave the precursor to the precursor to the active vitamin D. So, but the important point here is that when you give a very large one-time dose of vitamin D, that kicks in that fail-safe mechanism and causes the the body to break down that vitamin D. And in fact, the body will continue to break down vitamin D for 28 more days. So you end up actually having a lower vitamin D a week later than what you would have had if you hadn't gotten vitamin D at all. And the other problem is that the tests that are used to test for serum vitamin D in the blood don't distinguish between the active vitamin D and that breakdown product. So these researchers in Brazil, when they tested the serum levels of these patients said, oh, look, but we know that the bolus worked because their vitamin D levels in their blood were high. Whereas likely, we have no way of knowing because it's not a very commonly used test to distinguish between those. What they actually were finding is the breakdown product was high, not Um. the active vitamin D level was high. And that is the only study that the U.S. government has cited relating uh, in in discussing vitamin D and COVID-19. So, all the other studies that showed that vitamin D worked well, uh, there were three studies out of Spain, there were several from France, there were a lot of different prospective studies that showed that vitamin D dramatically decreased COVID case rates, COVID hospitalizations, COVID death rates, COVID ICU rates... All of those things were dramatically reduced when people had vitamin D prior to getting COVID-19 or early on when they first got COVID-19. All of those were not even mentioned by these government organizations. Instead, they mentioned only this Brazilian study in which they gave this huge bolus dose that probably actually served to drop the vitamin D. Level and actually, it wasn't even the, a
1: particularly big dose. It was, uh, in the end, it was a, it only raised it 80, levels very much. Yeah. and 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 you know if you throw a bucket of water on a blazing house fire you don't then and it doesn't put the house fire out you don't then report water doesn't put out fires right it's it's just like that in a disease if you act early you can put the fire out
0: so this is a perfect indication of what we are saying that despite the fact that none of the three of us would leap to the conclusion that public health authorities were actively somehow seeking not to control covid but in this case to take all of the evidence that vitamin d positively affects covid outcomes prevents contraction of the disease and positively affects outcomes in those who contract the disease to focus on the study that fails to point to that result because of an experimental design flaw is what you would predict if you were looking to avoid this conclusion somehow rather than to figure out what was going on and, and to navigate as best as possible. Yeah. So I want to, I want to uh, stop you for a second because most people don't know anything really about vitamin D can we talk a little bit about normal the normal h- interaction between human beings and vitamin d how it is supposed to work and then what modern life has done to that interaction and then what implications it has for disease
1: yeah i think it's worth probably look given that you 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 look through the evolutionary lens it's a very good way of looking at uh, what was vitamin d like you know 10,000 years ago for for us uh, as a species well, and actually there have been studies that have looked to try to find tribes that live that way now still and measure their serum levels. Uh, and they're great, really clever studies because they show us what our, our normal serum levels should be. And they're far, far higher than the levels that are currently defined as sufficient uh, in almost across the board. So we now, everybody who's part of this community is pretty much on board now with uh um, a, a level that we would target for ourselves of 50 nanograms per milliliter using the American units. We use slightly different units here in Europe, which you have to multiply by two and a half. Um, And and that's because you're out in in the the summer sun all the time, getting exposed all day when it's sunny.
2: Yeah, so what I talk about in my paper is the indoor lifestyle that we now have, which is absolutely not uh, what any of our predecessors had. And uh, the change was during the industrial revolution. So prior to the industrial revolution, virtually everyone in the world hunted, gathered, fished, or farmed. And so they were outside all day, including in the heat of the day. Now it's important to know that vitamin D is not obtained from the sun just anytime, anywhere. So, uh, The rule of thumb is that if the sun is not at least 45 degrees above the horizon, you are not going to be able to get any vitamin D because the ozone in the, and this is, you know, historically, the ozone in the air, the natural uh, atmosphere is thick enough that the UVB rays don't get to you. So you can still get sunburn from the vitamin, from the UVA rays, but the UVB rays that help provide vitamin D are not accessible to you. So what I tell people is, if you want to know if you're getting vitamin D or not, it's very simple. When you're outside, look at the ground, at your shadow. If your shadow is not sharp and shorter than you are tall, you are not getting significant amounts of vitamin D.
0: That's beautiful. Early
2: morning outside is a wonderful time. Enjoy the birds, but you're not getting vitamin D. Winter, middle of the day, if you live in a northern clime, you're not getting vitamin D. So it, this is a, and there are actually pretty easy to find uh, apps and uh, places you can go on the Internet where you can find out what the angle of the sun is in your particular location to find out whether or not you can get vitamin D today or not. But at this time of year, there is no place in the United States that you can get vitamin D even in the middle of the day. It's
1: so, also blocked pollution as well, so it's worth knowing that you might, you might all those conditions can be present, and you still might not be getting enough. So, That's true. Myself, yeah, air pollution. I take I take a daily supplement every day all year round. I just take more in winter than I do in summer.
0: So, uh, I'm also now taking uh, daily supplements as as is Heather. I'm, I'm is uh, yeah. D Minder a good app for people to use? We have recommended it. Is yeah. it yes. uh Okay. Yeah. And actually, yeah, grassroots, a, yeah, Grassroots
1: Health is a, a charity that was set up years ago and they have some fantastic information for people. It's aimed at uh, promoting information. It's called Grassroots because they've actually been campaigning for more than 10 years to try and get vitamin D similar here in the UK and failing. And in the end, decided we just have to educate people because the governments aren't, aren't going to uh, help us get this message out and are actively resisting it and have done for a decade.
0: So uh, I want to point out the uh, what may still be subtle for people, which is in almost any ancestral circumstance, the amount of outdoor time during the summer would result in a production of sufficient vitamin D, which would then be stored in fat. And muscles. Yeah. Uh, stored I'm in muscles actually. as well.
1: It's, yeah. It diffuses through all, so basically across your entire weight.
0: So. All right. So the stuff stored in fat and muscle in particular has a special relevance because basically we have an ebb and flow of available food resources in ancestral circumstances. And so what you have is an elegant system for banking vitamin D when it's easy to produce because the sun is high um, and storing it in fat, which will therefore then be released as times are tougher, less is growing, and there's less sunlight. So the point is, It's a system that is built to maintain an equilibrium and those of us who are supplementing to compensate for the fact that we are now spending much more time indoors and I should point out that there are some uh, counterintuitive aspects of this like uh, window glass blocks UV uh, radiation and therefore even if you're sitting in the window seat and it's uh, the sun is shining on you, it's not doing you any good in this regard.
2: Right. Sunscreen even, doesn't sun- take really any sunscreen at all to block the UVB rays, as well.
0: Sunscreen, and uh, you know, I was realizing um, I'm a cyclist, and I realized that even in the summer when it might be better to cycle with a shirt off, the cultural custom seems to be to wear a shirt, and that that's probably something that we ought to revise at least, maybe shortening sleeves or something would allow more production. Correct. Um,
2: the other thing we're seeing is that uh, the tropics. You'll notice if you look at COVID-19 rates all throughout sub-Saharan Africa, you're just not finding the COVID-19 rates. And we were expecting it to be catastrophic in sub-Saharan Africa because there's so little capacity. I lived for five years in a remote area of Ghana, and that is a very outdoor culture. The people basically use their huts as a place to shelter to protect themselves from dangers at night when they are asleep. Yep. They spend the entire day outside. They eat out outside. They visit outside. They cook outside. And in those areas, we're just not seeing COVID-19. I've got friends who work in hospitals and clinics there, and they're just not seeing it. And they should be. And I believe it's because their vitamin D levels are high. But in the areas that are uh, heavily Islamic, or have other cultural reasons. So for instance, Cambodia and the Philippines, I know for a fact, and and Brazil to a lesser extent, uh, light skin is highly valued. And so people tend to cover up, uh, especially the women tend to be covered up. And that's where we're seeing the outbreaks along the equator. It's places where people are wearing a lot of clothing even though they're in the tropics.
0: So-
1: This is exactly what happened with MERS. Do you remember MERS? Of course. The Middle East respiratory syndrome, uh, and it it was, uh, when I did my literature review at the very beginning of the pandemic to look into uh, previous coronaviruses and seasonality, it was one of the first things that stood out. And it was targeting exactly the same people who wore full body clothing, didn't get exposed to natural sunlight and were vitamin D deficient. Um, And when I did the causal inference analysis. We looked at, I think it's probably the biggest causal inference analysis ever conducted. We looked at 1.4 million data points because there was so much data coming out at that time and examined the geographic patterns. The virus was in... Australia, for example, all over the the centre of uh, the, the tropics, well before it hit Italy, and yet there were no severe outbreaks anywhere uh, until it hit Italy. All of the um, locations that suddenly started having severe outbreaks were happening north of pretty much north of forty degrees uh, north latitude. Uh, uh, a couple of exceptions were thirty degrees.
0: So I, I noticed early in the pandemic uh, the disaster that unfolded in guayaquil ecuador um right. now this is anomalous because of course ecuador means equator and so yeah. from the point of view of the angle of the sun it's the perfect place to be guayaquil is on the coast it's a low area but it is very hot and I don't know. Maybe you know the answer, but I'm wondering if the prevalence of air conditioners and the tendency of people to be driven indoors by uh, heat might have contributed in Guayaquil compared to, for example, Quito, which is at high altitude and a much more temperate climate. Yeah. Um, where- well,
1: there are two factors that, that, that might be at play there. One is that there's uh, a genetic polymorphism which, is, which interferes with vitamin D production in communities in Ecuador. Uh, I, I'm not the expert on that particular thing, but I'm in touch with one scientist who is. And the other explanation, as you've said, is in, in very hot weather. This happened actually in Arizona as well. I was very surprised to see rates going up in Arizona because the temperature was so high that it was 40 degrees centigrade, which is I don't know what in Fahrenheit, like a billion Fahrenheit or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and so of course, in weather that's that hot, everybody goes straight to the mall, whereas and an air conditioning you you know, an air conditioning mall is perfect breeding ground for a, 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 an envelope virus, you know, it can, it's, it's dry and it's cold and, it, and that's perfect uh, transmission time. So. You were
2: talking about Italy earlier and Italy's early uh, a pandemic and the surprising thing with Italy, and you could see the same thing in Korea, that uh, in both Italy and Korea, you would expect the biggest outbreaks to be in the biggest cities that have the international airports. So you would expect Rome to be where the Italian outbreak was, but it wasn't. Instead, the Italian outbreak was up north and in the mountains. And the same thing happened in Korea. Seoul did not have the big outbreak. The big outbreak was in a smaller city. And people looked at the air pollution levels across those countries. And the air pollution was such that both Seoul and Rome, the way that they sit on the coast, The same thing happens with Houston, Texas. The the currents push the air pollution inland. And so those areas don't have high air pollution, unlike California, where the California coast has the mountains right behind it. And California coast has serious air pollution right along the coast. And so they found that air pollution was a really high uh, risk factor for getting uh, COVID-19. And Wuhan has incredible problems with air pollution.
0: So is the uh, I guess maybe because they both point in the same direction. Air pollution on the one hand blocks uh, UV radiation. Also, it will tend to drive people indoors where they have at least some insulation from it.
2: Um, well, you, you're not if you're if you're living in a really heavily polluted city. There's really no way to get away from it. You know that we're we're uh, <laughs> talking about. Uh, people that don't necessarily have HIPAA air filters inside their houses. So, um, The thing
1: worth worth, um, uh, noting is that in Brazil, for example, that was one of the um, southern countries that seemed to start to have a a, a big outbreak and did have a problem, Um, and that was surprising to people. Uh, Brazil actually has a very well-documented vitamin D deficiency problem in its older communities, which of course, uh, you know, older people, they're they're usually housebound or in a home and they're not out in the sun getting... uh, And and there's a very um, high uh, population that are either black or mixed race uh, and, and, you know, that your skin colour will also block you these So, uh, early in the pandemic, when I was working with um, Dr. Karami and Dr. Byers, we, we predicted that we would see, if we were right, we would start seeing higher fatality rates in people with dark skin. And as that happened, they were being announced on the news. It was another data point that said, we're right about this. And it was just incredibly hard to get people to take that seriously. Um, which is very sad. Yes, it's, yeah, it's a it's a here.
0: politically incorrect conclusion that there is something physiologically predisposing darker skinned people to risk from COVID. The irony is that recognize I mean, the reason that dark skinned people have dark skin is to block UV radiation. Yeah. And so it is not surprising in an era where people have been moved around so they don't live where their ancestors were and their skin color does not necessarily match the amount of encounter with UV radiation that they have, that therefore being aware that it blocks vitamin D production and supplementing to compensate for it. And supplementing, I would point out, can mean, mean taking a vitamin D supplement. It can also mean minding the position of the sun and very actively banking vitamin D, which is, yeah. uh, to my way of thinking, a much better although I am now forced to supplement uh, with diet, uh, banking it from the sun would be a far superior mechanism. Is that is that fair to say? Yes.
2: And, and here in Jamaica, uh, I've done a lot of education with the people here on the time of day that they need to be out in the sun because uh, obviously it's hotter and not as pleasant in the middle of the day. And so if they're not a farmer or a fisherman they have no need to be out in the sun in the heat of the day and so we've uh, done a lot of education with them saying you know it's going to take some time even here in the tropics for you to get enough vitamin d and you need to be out there fortunately here in jamaica it's like between 9 a.m and 3 p.m there's a pretty big window of time that they can be out in the sun but it's already hot at eight yeah. So um, so you're exactly right. And my paper, the original one, the uh, basic review paper, I had a hard time getting them to assign my final peer reviewer. It was yeah. the other peer reviewers finally approved it in the middle of August. And then I couldn't get a final peer reviewer to be assigned and it just languished. And then as soon as I got that final peer reviewer assigned the very next day, she approved it and it was Ready to be published, I thought, because every other time I've published a paper, as soon as the peer reviewers give it a thumbs up, it goes straight to uh, production for, you know, any typographical errors and layout and that kind of thing. Instead, the editor came back to me and said, we have these content changes that we need you to make before your paper can be printed. And I was like, what? Aren't the peer reviewers the ones who are supposed to be the arbitrators of the content of the article? But no, they wanted me to remove every reference I had to people with melanin rich skin. In other words, people who have a naturally darker toned skin having increased risk for vitamin D deficiency. And I a said, Scientific
0: well, would-
2: fact. Yeah. And I said, that would be perfectly immoral. If I knew that this was causing a certain group of people to be higher risk and I refused to tell them because I wanted to be politically correct, no, I cannot do that. That's a deal breaker. I will just, I can rearrange the sentences, you know, I can tone it down in other ways, but I can't just omit that fact. The peer reviewers accepted it with that information. I believe that information is critical to high risk individuals and I won't remove it. And eventually they backed down, but it was, it was, you know, a standoff there where, you know, my husband and I prayed over it and we had made a conscious decision of, you know, are we going to, after all this work, allow this article to die on this hill? And we said, no, this is a hill I'll die on.
1: We um, is- we have the number of uh, stories of censorship. I mean, everybody's experienced censorship on social media and Twitter, and now LinkedIn. If they've tried to share things about vitamin D, I actually have a friend who works for Facebook, and I who personally reversed some uh, articles that I was sharing that got got censored by Facebook. But that's fortunate that I know somebody there. But my the second version of uh, our causal inference. Uh, paper was rejected by MedArchive, which is a preprint server, right? So preprints aren't supposed to judge content. Uh, They're supposed to, they they have certain safeguards, which is fair enough. But the the reason for rejecting the paper was that we used, we added new use of, quote, causal language in a causal inference study. And they refused to uh, publish it and uh, and said they wouldn't publish it unless we changed, removed that wording and replaced it with phrases like is associated with, which is exactly the opposite of what we were trying to, what we've proven in the study.
0: Wait, 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 wait. So there must be something wrong with our Zoom call because it sounded almost exactly like you said that there was censorship discussing vitamin D with respect to COVID?
1: And it's happening in preprint, not just, it also happens in journals. We've um, a colleague, uh, if you can use the word colleague and associate through this community, a few months ago shared, uh, he'd had several, It's a well-respected professor of um, epidemiology and and vitamin D expert. And he's had three rejections of a, a paper that he was a positive paper about vitamin D Two of the replies told him to change the finding to a negative finding or they wouldn't publish the paper so this is it's overt. Awkwardly. it is overt.
0: but this is this is what i'm having such a hard time conveying to anybody who is only loosely paying attention to what's going on with our public health response to COVID. is that when somebody says that discussion of the effect of vitamin d and vitamin d deficiency on COVID is being censored on social media platforms. They've said something utterly remarkable. This is a very important factor in COVID. Uh, and I will ask you shortly to talk about the, um, an estimate of how much of the death that has flowed from covid could have been prevented if people had been aware of the vitamin d issue and had dealt with it but to the extent that vitamin d is extremely safe extremely cheap and apparently extremely effective at preventing covid when you are available <laughs> widely available i mean stacks of it at Costco you know that are taller than I am I it's amazing what a simple easily accessible intervention this is and the fact that it differential I mean even your story Linda about your being told to change language about populations having different susceptibility to deficiencies in vitamin D who will be harmed by that people who are likely to be vitamin D deficient who won't necessarily know about it unless someone has mentioned it. So even even this is upside down. But there
2: is another group of people that will be harmed by that. Because the narrative was that the reason why dark, complexed people who were not living along the equator were having more hospitalizations, fatalities, and deaths from COVID-19 was because of health disparities. And that drove a huge influx of funds into public clinics and that sort of thing. That all all of that funding was dependent upon the idea that we had now proven that health disparities were killing people. Now, I originally thought that might be the case until the UK Telegraph published their wall of heroes of the first people who had died of COVID-19, the first healthcare professionals who had died of COVID-19, the first 10 physicians to die of COVID-19 in the UK were all dark complected people who were immigrants or their ancestors were immigrants to the UK. And just uh, shortly after that wall started being published, it was up to 90% of all the people who died in the UK who were healthcare professionals, including uh, or any any health association at all, were dark-complected. Now, you cannot tell me that a neurosurgeon who happens to be of Indian origin died of COVID because he couldn't get access to basic care. That is not why he died. It was not a health disparity issue.
0: Right. So this is, I mean, the problem is that the simple facts of the way information is being treated here if you look at it and you acknowledge its implication, it makes you sound like a crazy person, right? We have an intervention. I mean, we can talk all day about repurposed drugs and whether they do or don't work and what the evidence says and whether randomized controlled trials are the answer or whether they're obscuring the answer, but this is vitamin D. And, you know, I I must say, I've been using it as a bellwether. The very fact that we are still not recommending vitamin D to people in uh, high latitudes who are almost certainly deficient, given the evidence, is an indicator that something that, to my mind, goes beyond anything that could be explained by incompetence is just very clear. And for you to encounter in the publication process that some sensitivity about interrupting some narrative about health disparities, which, as far as I'm concerned, probably do exist, but even figuring out to what extent they are explanatory requires a discussion of what other things might be leading to some portion of uh, the disparity in outcomes that we're seeing. Mm-hmm. So the idea that we know the conclusions and that we are going to dress them up as science and then provide them to the public and in so doing, by the way, prevent people from having the information about vulnerabilities they themselves may harbor. Right. We're.
2: Yeah. I mean, my my African-American friends and my Jamaican friends and my Ghanaian friends are angry that that this censorship is occurring because they're saying, you know, they are so yes, we all admit there are health disparities, but they are so focused on this narrative and on this end game that they have their political agenda, that they are willing to risk the lives of me and my friends over their agenda. And that just makes me that makes me very angry.
0: And at the same time, I mean, I, I am just struck by the fact that we have Operation Warp Speed to produce vaccines at an incredibly rapid pace. An impressive feat, no matter what you think of the product that was produced. It is an impressive feat that they got there so quickly. But what have we done? We have sped the process of safety testing, which is something that cannot be accelerated. It's not a matter of something you can do faster because in part what you're looking for are delayed effects. So what we've got is a system that pretends that it is so obsessed with your health that it is going to cut corners in your interest in order to get you to something that works as rapidly as possible. At the same time, it is ignoring something that clearly does work, that is clearly very safe and would be the number one intervention. I mean, in fact, uh, my viewers will know that I have uh, a, I think, well-founded obsession with the concept of diminishing returns that this is the most important thing to understand with respect to complex adaptive systems, uh, which is that there are some interventions that are highly effective and very easy. And then you exhaust those and you move towards things which do less and less at a greater and greater expense. And the point is vitamin D is at the very most bargain level, right? The amount of good that could be done for the smallest amount of intervention is probably vitamin D. And yet mm-hmm. somehow we're up here at some risky experiment that we're running with some very novel technology that is claimed to be safe, but obviously there are indications that it might not be so safe. In terms of efficacy, we know that six months down the road, it has spectacularly dropped off. So we're dealing with some super exotic remedy here when there's a very basic remedy that we're pretending doesn't exist. This makes uh, I think no that, sense. That,
1: the level of financial commitment early on to vaccines was so high, and for the you know for the right reasons. At the beginning of the, the pandemic, we didn't know what we were dealing with. You know, it could have been something far worse than than, than COVID nineteen. Um, but once you've committed to a financial route that's worth what trillions, I mean, who knows how much that's worth. Yeah, I think just the very idea that something as simple and cheap and widely available as vitamin D could be the solution would then lead to you having wasted all of that money and all of the operational setup. And I think at some level, whether it's cognitive bias, unconscious cognitive bias, or whether it's conscious, pernicious manipulation by the people who are making the trillions of dollars or both, it's probably all of the things that we can think of. Um that, that just led to people not, not wanting to even try, because you've mentioned Pascal's wager before, even if we were wrong, we knew we were wrong, but even if we were wrong, vitamin D is good for so many things. Why wouldn't you just on the balance of risks say, you know, we know it's safe up to at least 4,000 international units. Actually, the studies show safe higher, higher than that but ten thousand is yeah. four thousand there's, there's no
2: one who says that less than ten thousand is harmful that more that ten thousand or less is
1: harmful right and so like, why wouldn't you just do that as a blanket recommendation to every adult uh, and then you know see if it works
0: yes the yeah, uh, I've started to think about it this way, which is when one recommends an intervention, one has to think very carefully about the side effects right? And in this case, the side effects are largely positive, right? Right. The side effects will be that people will be more resistant to other diseases. And so the point is, look, let's say somehow you two have completely misunderstood the evidence, right? I've read your work. I know that's not what happened. But let's say that somehow you had misunderstood the evidence about what was going on with the interaction of vitamin D deficiency and COVID. Then still, The recommendation recommendation would be a slam dunk with respect to improving human health generally with a minimal safe intervention. If you add on top of that, the incredibly powerful evidence that this is an incredibly important factor in the harm that has come from covid. And the point is no rational person who was actually interested in controlling this disease and had looked at this evidence could possibly have failed to make this recommendation.
2: Well, I think there's something we're not taking into account. Obviously, people aren't rational, uh, but um, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> but, but there's something else we're not taking into account, and that is that most people like to perceive themselves as being intelligent heroes. And that's true of our public health officials as well. And basically, if they accept the vitamin D evidence that we've provided them now, they had been duped by previous Things And they're not heroes at all, because they should have recommended this a year ago, a year and a half ago. And so they'd be replacing their superhero's cape with a dunce cap. And no one wants to do that. Well, the hardest person to convince of something is the person who has been uh, conned, basically. Well,
0: good. So let's hope they watch my podcast, because... I I think of myself as something of an expert at getting less dumb over time, right? <laughs> and the key lesson here is that if you have been dumb and you're confronting the question of admitting that you've been dumb, it's still a bargain because continuing to be dumb makes the cost go up. And getting <laughs> smart as quick as possible is really no matter how late in the process, no matter how – I mean, look, I've told you already – when COVID started, I would have told you, hey, you need to be a bit careful supplementing vitamin D because it's a fat-soluble vitamin, and that means there's a hazard of overdose. So, we, we want to figure out exactly what that level is. You know what? That was dumb. That was an extrapolation from vitamin A, and it was not justified. And it presumably has had some effect on my thoughts about whether or not it would be a good idea to supplement vitamin D. Who knows how many respiratory viruses I have suffered from or suffered worse than I might have because I've been deficient in vitamin D for my whole life. But you know what? I'm not gonna do that going forward. Yeah, and but so you're a scientist, Brett, and we're
1: scientists. I mean, Linda and I, uh, you know, we have many conversations where where we've both said I'll change my mind immediately. I currently believe this, but as soon as there's new evidence, I'll change my position. The three of us are scientists. That's what we do. We know we're trained to do that. But I don't think politicians, unless they're scientists, have that mindset. And they tend to double down.
0: Yeah. But you know what? You you, you said something in passing a few minutes ago, which unfortunately uh, fits the evidence all too well which is that there's a perverse incentive here for many people. There is. There's
1: a perverse financial incentive. There's a
0: gigantic market that has opened up as a result of COVID. and If you imagine sociopaths or robots running the public health apparatus, and I'm not saying that that's what's going on, but just use that as a model for a moment, Mm -hmm. and you imagine that their purpose was to enhance their own position in the world, right? and that these markets were suddenly uh spitting out cash at an incredible rate right well then what would they think of repurposed drugs that work like fluvoxamine or vitamin d which is available you know by the pallet full at your box store right what would they think if these things suddenly loomed up and threatened to control COVID and put the world back to normal
2: yeah, and as a result of that, we've actually had some uh, vitamin D proponents who are offering a different message. There's a, a really nice, uh, very elegant little study that was done, um, came out in December of 2020, but it didn't talk about COVID-19 at all. That looked at immunizations' effects on the elderly and showed that if someone is who's elderly has very low vitamin D and they're immunized. Then when they look at their skin for antibodies, they find that they don't have a strong reaction to the vaccination and they have a much better reaction to the vaccination if they have higher vitamin D levels. Then they took the people who had the poor reaction, supplemented them with vitamin D and found that their reaction improved. And so even if you don't think vitamin D has anything directly to do with COVID-19, then you should at least be supporting at this point, the public health people should at least be supporting vitamin D as an adjunct to the immunizations, because you're more likely to get a good response to that third or fourth or fifth booster if you have a higher vitamin D level.
0: So what I'm beginning to understand, and you know, my my expertise is complex adaptive systems, what I'm beginning to understand that I didn't understand before is that the term vitamin is not especially helpful. That no, it's not. No, it really it,
1: should be renamed to uh, pre-hormone D,
0: right? And like so, that. in effect, <clears throat> I, I'm I'm uh, thinking by analogy to the term catalyst applied to an enzyme, right? Well, yeah, it's
2: vitamin D ha- actually is. Its primary role, and I've only learned this more recently, I didn't know this a year ago, but its primary role is in altering cell signaling, both within the cell and between cells. So the main thing that vitamin D does is it improves communication throughout the body. And the reason why we call it pre-hormone is is because um, a hormone is something your body makes, whereas a vitamin is by definition something your body does not make. So, calling vitamin, ca- calling it vitamin D when your body makes it doesn't make any sense. Wait, Maybe wait, 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 wait. wait, wait. Get-
0: uh, this I didn't know. Vitamin, so when we say essential amino acid, what we mean is essential in your diet because you can't make it, right? Correct. When we say vitamin, we are saying something similar. This is something right. you can't make. And then vitamin exactly. D is clearly not a vitamin.
2: Right, because yeah, vitamin so D can is, be made by your skin, but yeah. vitamin D can also be obtained from food. And a lot of people think that they can get enough from food if they're careful enough, and that is not the case unless they're leading a truly primitive lifestyle. I've or got if you go a, Japan
1: and eat fish every meal. All well, yeah, fish.
2: like I said, e- even then, a lot of people in Japan are somewhat deficient. People in Norway and and uh, um, Iceland are less deficient because they eat more fish so it needs to be cold water fatty fish which are usually found in deep water spaces like oceans so uh, even wild-caught salmon is going to be high in vitamin d but farm-raised salmon is not because the reason salmon are high in vitamin d is because they get the vitamin d from the plankton that they eat which sits out in the sun so um I've got a friend that I spoke to just two weeks ago who works as a, uh, or worked previously as a uh, family practitioner in a remote area of Alaska. And he said that he, about 10 years ago, was testing every one of his patients for vitamin D. And he could predict which one of his patients came from a village. They all came from villages, but some of the villages retained their native lifestyle. So they were eating mostly wild game and and fish. And those people had a vitamin D level of not just 50, but 60 to 80 nanograms per milligram milliliter. Whereas those that had adopted the westernized uh, diet, they were almost universally severely vitamin D deficient.
0: So, so all right.
2: Yeah, salmon, wild caught fish... Uh, that's about all because if you know, when they talk about having vitamin D in uh, uh, fortified foods and vitamin D in uh, irradiated mushrooms, but those levels are so low that they're pretty much insignificant. So you get vitamin D in eggs, but you would have to eat 50 eggs a day to get enough vitamin D for that day.
0: That's a lot. The I mean, effect
1: on respiratory illnesses is, I mean, I've heard one doctor say, there's no such thing as flu and cold season. There's only vitamin D deficiency season. And as I, you, you mentioned you know about wondering how many colds and flu you might have avoided. In the three years that I've been supplementing vitamin D, Uh, because i was diagnosed diagnosed deficient and i used to get colds and flu every year i was the kind of person that would just catch everything i haven't had a single noticeable cold i mean i've had sniffles start i feel it coming on and uh i just haven't had a cold or flu i've had covid but it was like one degree temperature for about a day and a half a little dry cough and i've recovered and i've recovered from everything within it always resolves within a day
0: yeah in fact uh My interest in vitamin D began uh, the first time I heard Ryan Cole, Dr. Ryan Cole, um, talk about it. And he said exactly this. He said, there is no cold and flu season. There's vitamin D deficiency season. And it was a dime dropped for me it was like yeah uh, wow. and
1: many people that work that are part of our community the email community are retired doctors who somehow discovered this D despite their training and and have been using it with their patients there's a, a famous um paper about something called the D3 Hammer, which is, um, I think it's a a dose of 50,000 international units that a doctor used on uh, geriatric patients uh, to resolve uh, flu and cold symptoms and and said they resolved it in two days. uh, And and people have been using that. I also find, and and we discuss a lot of uh, nutritional support Protocols. Uh, it works in concert with vitamin C and zinc. So, uh, the moment I think I'm, you know, might be uh, subject to a cold or flu. I also make sure to take vitamin C, and I'm taking vitamin D every day. Uh, and and yeah, never felt healthier. It's um, and that's just, that's a very common story among our community. We, you know, we're very very robust in terms of uh, colds and flu. I
2: think this whole idea of flu season, cold and flu season being in the winter, when I was a child, they used to say, oh yeah, it's because everyone is indoors. And and that worked back when I was a child because I'm so very old that we didn't have air conditioning when I was a child growing up. But that no longer is a satisfactory explanation now because most people in Europe and the United States and Canada live in climate-controlled homes. And how much we are in close proximity with other people has nothing to do with the time of year at all. And so the fact that we have a cold and flu season in the winter cannot possibly be a result of us being indoors more in the winter because it's cold. Because in Texas, we're outside more in the winter because it's nice and cool. Yeah. And in the summer, we're all together in our air-conditioned places because it's too hot to be outside. Uh, there's
1: been a that, there's been a false assumption, I think, forever that that seasonality is down to things like uh, behavior, movement, etc., hanging out, but also the effect of UV destroying viral particles in the open air. Um, And that was something that I looked at early on, because it is definitely responsible for reduced transmission rates. You can see how that would dampen transmission rates. But what it doesn't explain is why case fatality rates would vary over the seasons. Mm. And most scientists and doctors assume that it doesn't. Most assume that the case fatality rate is fixed. It was one of the first things I looked at, and it's very easy to separate those two things out. You just look at the ratio of uh, recoveries to hospitalizations, and if that's varying over the season, you know the case fatality rate is changing. And it was, and it was changing not just over time in particular regions. You could see the geographic relationship. So case fatality rates were much much lower in hotter countries where they were, or in this, you know, the, on the other side of the planet in Australia, it was in summer. I still can't believe that Australia is in lockdown. I mean, they, they have zero reason, almost zero cases. I mean, they have fewer cases across the entire continent of Australia than we have in my borough in London.
0: Well, and yet, uh, it's almost sorry. as if, uh, you know, tyranny was the point and COVID was the excuse. Um, but certainly, um, we're one looking to preserve the freedoms in the glorious free society like, like Australia. Uh, turning to something like uh, vitamin D would be a much wiser thing to do um, than to lock down civilization. And And,
1: and they generally don't have the the problem that we do because they're they're, they're further towards the equator than than we are. And that's why they have a a very low incidence of... Um, well, of of COVID and and COVID deaths. Uh, Finland is also another really good example, as well as Japan. Japan has naturally higher vitamin D status than we do and had a much, much milder pandemic than we did. Uh, And Finland is an incredible country to look at because they've implemented uh, a nationwide food fortification with vitamin D. And they they started it in 2003. They doubled it in 2010. And if you look at the CDC data uh, historically for... Um, influenza virus um, particles of different different mutations. You can see the drop in the in, in line with the vitamin D fortification uh, because they had a terrible problem, which is why they put the program into into place in the first place.
2: If you look at uh, the Scandinavian countries, the exception that's always brought up is Sweden. Early on, had uh, was really hard hit with COVID, but if you look at the you go dig down deep into the data, what you find is, several Sweden is different from the other Scandinavian countries in several ways. One is that they're more likely to have their elderly in care homes, uh, but and they do have somewhat lower vitamin D uh, deficiency, uh, somewhat higher vitamin D deficiency. But the interesting thing is, is their initial wave where they were hit so hard, was, all, was 50% of the people who died were Somali immigrants. And, you know, the Somali refugees, who, of course, are dark-complected people who are not eating the native diet of fish and represent less than 1% of the population. And so this group of people who didn't have the vitamin D and who was out of their normal element and therefore weren't getting vitamin D from the sun uh, were getting by uh, getting covid-19 and everyone was saying oh yeah it's because sweden isn't locking down
0: okay so yeah. could you could you run through that statistic again what fraction of the swedish so deaths
2: the the very early data not not to this day but the early data in sweden fully 50% of the people who died were somali refugees despite the fact that they represent less than 1% of the population
0: so and, and, there are, there and are they, many, they would have had two Extra risk factors, one coming from not eating the native fish rich diet and the other coming from dark skin that blocks the production of vitamin D. Exactly.
2: Right? exactly. And there are really good studies in maternal health because maternal health is strongly related to vitamin D. And a lot of maternity centers test for vitamin D and provide a vitamin D supplements. And the, if you look at articles about the Somali refugees in uh, Sweden, you find that Uh, that group of people was extremely vitamin D deficient, but they're very reticent to take vitamin D supplements because their imams would tell them that they were um, going counter to Allah if they were not just continuing with the traditional ways. And so it was very difficult to get these Somali refugee women to accept vitamin D supplements.
0: Wow. All right. So, so again, my my model of vitamin d was wrong vitamin d is not a simple cofactor that is involved in important uh reactions in which most of us get enough from our diet and some of us may be deficient and so a little bit of supplementation would bring you up to uh up to the right level and you would have whatever protection that turns out to be wrong this is not a vitamin by the definition that you provided it is apparently highly relevant to many different functions in the body. The importance of it in cell-to-cell signaling is, of course, conspicuous because that's going to have tremendous ramifications around the body, potentially. Um And I would also say I think I was misled because, like so many, I took the US RDA uh, – Recommended daily allowance to be indicative of at what point Deficiency would kick in if you were below the US RDA you were probably deficient if you were above it You probably weren't and therefore had very little to gain from uh, Supplementing or thinking about it and what I believe I've come to understand from your paper is that in fact the recommended daily allowance is actually a kind of paleolithic measure built strictly around its implication for bone density. Okay.
2: In addition, there's a statistical error that's been pointed out by two different statisticians and uh, confirmed by a third that, that says that the uh, amount of uh, the, the US RDA is off. By a factor of close to ten, it's not just a decimal error movement; it's a more complicated statistical error than that. But the uh, USRDA should probably be closer to seven thousand international units rather than four hundred to eight hundred international units. Wow! Um, so the so that and, and and I don't know why they have not revisited that to see about changing that. But vitamin D affects a lot more than just your immune system, and. Everything that vitamin D affects, if you compare the symptoms of vitamin D deficiency with the symptoms of severe COVID-19, they match up almost perfectly. So for instance, just getting COVID-19 in the first place, vitamin D strengthens the epithelial junctions, the tight junctions, the gap junctions, the junctions between cells. So you're less likely to have an invader, such as the, SARS, the SARS-CoV-2 the SARS virus, even enter the system if you have vitamin D levels high. You're, you're basically your Basically, your walls surrounding your city will be strengthened by having good vitamin D. And so a lot of people are not ever going to even test positive if they've got a good vitamin D level. Then your T cell immunity is strengthened and controlled. So you're more likely to have an appropriate reaction to the invader rather than having an overreaction where you, you know, burn all your powder too quickly and then don't have anything left or you do catastrophic damage to yourself because you're just shooting wildly. Um, So vitamin D helps with the adaptive immunity as well as the innate immunity. And then it also controls um, some complicated things that we don't need to go into like the renin angiotensin system and, uh, So there are other more complex systems within the body that go out of control in COVID-19 that vitamin D helps regulate and keep in control. And one of the things that's gotten a lot of press lately has been the fact that with severe COVID-19, you get thrombolytic events, you get uh, blood clots that do a lot of damage. In fact, most of the damage from severe COVID-19 is not just damage in the lungs, but also you get damage in the various other organs because of blood clots. And those blood clots aren't formed by the virus itself. They're caused by the overreaction to the the virus. And vitamin D controls that system and helps prevent those blood clots.
0: Fascinating. And the number of
1: mechanisms that were already known pertinent to Uh, this particular disease I mean I've got a document I think I'm I'm running up to nearly 10 that I know about now there are dozens and and vitamin D is well known to control I think now more than 20,000 genes in the body so it's 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 one of the most ubiquitous and uh, and important hormones of all of the hormones. I mean, every hormone is important, but it's uh, and and I think it's probably worth clarifying that the, the D3 version that we eat is several metabolic steps away from the active form. And what we measure when we call the active form actually isn't the active form There's another one another step further down. So you'll hear calc- calcifidiol or calcidiol is as the active form, but it's actually calcitriol, which is the form that's used in cells to initiate all of the immune responses um, that, that help you uh, with vitamin D. But the, the mechanisms are really well understood. I've written about them. Many other researchers have written about them. Um, and it, and so it's really baffling to understand why people would question, given the level of evidence coming I mean the triangulation that you can get if you look at this from all the different angles from biological plausibility from uh, t- temporal the all of the geographic data around the world ecological studies longitudinal studies um, you know there's, there's four decades of research behind vitamin d that's just being ignored um, and part of it's snobbery because it's food science you know there's a historic Uh, weight around vitamin D's leg. Part of it is, I think, I mean, the literature is littered with statistical mistakes and bad analyses and things like that, which don't help. But if you have a good grounding in stats and and, and, uh, can understand numbers and data, it's pretty easy to clear the fog away and see see the real picture that's there.
2: Well, I do think that we can excuse a lot of the doctors who are not on board with vitamin D because they don't have the time most of them okay. to dig into the the basic literature themselves they rely upon their medical societies and and the the various guidelines you know up to date in the various guidelines in order to get their information and uh, about 10 years ago or so uh, the vitamin D clarion call was very loud and this the time when my uh, friend in Alaska was testing every single patient for vitamin D and uh, vitamin D uh, testing at that time was covered by Medicare and groups like that. But what happened is after that, they did these population studies in which they used the USRDA as the amount of vitamin D they were going to supplement with. There were very poorly designed studies with a very, uh, uh, primitive understanding or not a very adequate understanding of how vitamin D works. And so they uh, supplemented people with way less vitamin D than they should have. They supplemented them for a shorter amount of time than they should have. And they uh, 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 supplemented people who were already vitamin D sufficient as well as people who were deficient. And so that would dilute the uh, results. And so it'd be a little bit like I, the example I give is um, we all know that amoxicillin uh, is extremely effective against strep throat. To this day, we don't have severe resistance for amoxicillin against strep throat. That's what everybody uses. 500 milligrams three times a day is the accepted dose. If we instead gave people in a study five milligrams, of amoxicillin three times a day, and then had another group, which we didn't give any amoxicillin at all, we could easily prove that amoxicillin is not useful at all for strep throat. And so they basically disproved vitamin D being useful with studies that inadequately dosed people and were poorly designed. And those studies were very widely accepted. And as a result, the uh, physicians were given the message, oh, this vitamin D thing looked good but we've disproven it. It's really a bunch of nothing. And so a lot of the uh, physicians now, when they hear about vitamin D, they say, "Oh, fooled fool me once. You're not going to fool me twice. I know this vitamin D thing is just a few zealots. It doesn't really work. And um, Martinou did a study in 2017. That's probably the most widely cited study for vitamin D in which what he did was he took all the studies that had been poorly designed from uh, vitamin D, um, going back and did a meta-analysis in which he looked at individual patient data. It was a massive study and showed with this meta-analysis data that, oh, but if you use high enough doses and you don't give the boluses, but rather you give it daily or weekly, you do get a dramatic effect on uh, respiratory viruses. In fact, respiratory viruses in the elderly are cut in half influenza rates, uh, death rates could be cut in half with vitamin D supplementation. And that did get some attention. So uh, that study, to me, the big takeaway on it is you have to look at the studies and see whether or not they were designed appropriately to get meaningful results.
0: Right. Or uh, as we've seen in some of the COVID literature, there is a a go-to move if you want to avoid the impression that something works, the underpowered study. And so I okay. don't know in the case that you cite whether or not uh, treating with uh, such a meager dose of vitamin D in a population that may already be sufficient was uh, intentional sabotage or simply an accident. But the fact is, it is all too possible to generate the impression that something highly effective isn 't effective at all if you design the study in such a way that it doesn 't reveal the effect that 's um, right so underpowered and, and studies i 'm
1: looking at the evidence i mean i 've noticed this phenomenon over and over again. people will and, and in fact, nice did this when they looked at the they the first did their review, which uh, you know at the time I think I counted. 8,000 results on Google Scholar for vitamin D and coronavirus. And then they came out with a review that looked at five studies. They actually did put our paper in an appendix of studies that they wouldn't consider because it was a preprint. Um, although Martineau then applied for some grant funding using it. So it was good enough for him to apply for money, uh, but not good enough to tell the world that you know, vitamin D was a, a thing to do. Um, but the if, if, if you I, I use a, a metaphor, which is that if you have detectives you've got some good detectives and some bad detectives and you tell them to investigate a murder and five of them go to the house and see the murder weapon and so find the blood and the victim and the other five go down to the pub or look in their kitchen or in their own you know their own or have a beer or whatever they're going to come back with different reports some are because of incompetence and laziness uh, and some might be just corrupt you can't take five studies that show strong evidence and then five studies that didn't provide evidence and somehow say those no evidence studies cancel out the positive evidence from the first five but very often in the literature and I think this is true in medicine in general studies that report no evidence of effect are immediately interpreted as evidence of no effect which is a completely different statement and you need you can make a study that can prove there's no effect within a certain tolerance but you have to have incredibly high power i'm not aware of any study that's done that uh, the, the hasty biobank study claimed to have done it but that was statistical fiction we, linda and i collaborated with the, um, a, a physicist to uh, take down that paper and point out that they'd they just artificially inflated they had about a thousand data points and they, they claimed it they had nearly half a million by mislabeling a whole lot of extra data and uh, i've never read a worse piece of science in my life I don't know how that got published. Um, it just shows how broken peer review is, and, and the number of studies that quote that study. The reason we went to the trouble of, of, of rebutting it uh, formally was because people were still quoting it a year later, and it's it's blatantly wrong. And, and I don't understand how anyone could read it and take it seriously, but it's it's taken seriously all the time.
0: Yeah, we we see this pattern uh, across the COVID literature, and Um, it's very, well, let's put it this way. You know, the story is, well, we don't have enough evidence that vitamin D or ivermectin, uh, works. And therefore we're advising caution because of the danger of using it. Well, what if there is no danger because these things are comparatively safe? Well, there is a danger. And then you look into the evidence of that and it isn't really evidence, but then you see something like fluvoxamine right? Which has now been demonstrated to be highly effective against COVID. And there's no move uh, evident to make it the standard of care. So the point is, well, it seems like actually you don't want things that work to be used because – and you're just using the fact that you don't think the evidence is good enough to explain why you're not using these things. And the way we can tell is that when you have something that does meet your standard of evidence, you still don't use it, right? So – Sometimes
2: the sometimes the politics get in the way and the politics are just unbelievable. If you look at what's happened with monoclonal antibodies in the United States, monoclonal antibodies have been around and have been had emergency use use authorization. They're very expensive, but they didn't work since January of twenty twenty one. But very few states were using them and they weren't very well publicized. Well, the governors of Texas and Florida, you know, the two states that are flouting a lot of the uh, uh, restriction lockdown kind of things, both highly endorsed monoclonal antibodies and started opening up monoclonal antibody centers so that anybody who wanted them could easily access monoclonal antibodies. So what happens next? Monoclonal antibodies are suddenly um, regulated the distribution becomes regulated by the federal government and they start and they forbid the companies from shipping to Florida or Texas because they say, we need to distribute these equitably across all the states. So these states that aren't interested in monoclonal antibodies have stockpiles of them while Texas and Florida are shorted.
0: Which even if they were to distribute those and use them, this will prevent you from accumulating the evidence that they work. Right. If Texas and Florida start allowing anybody who wants monoclonal antibodies to use them and they suddenly have low rates of covid harm from people who have been infected, then that would raise the question of whether the rest of the state should get on board. On the other hand, if you distribute these things in such a way that the effect is diluted and nobody has a very strong effect because they're so widely distributed, you won't see that pattern and you can uh, dismiss. Dismiss this potentially important curative agent uh, and, you know, basically rationalize your failure to use it.
2: Yeah. And the whole thing is, if you've got something that's very strongly preventative for severe COVID-19 hospitalizations and death, whether it's vitamin D, ivermectin, monoclonal antibodies, whatever, then you lose the rationale for emergency use authorization for the vaccines. The
0: vaccines which it's seem no to be longer the longer emergency. Right, it's and so we have this one therapy which clearly the public health authority has uh signed up for and uh will entertain no evidence that it was an error. Um and we have all sorts of other things on the table from fluvoxamine to vitamin D uh to monoclonal antibodies which are, you know, uh just unable to get a proper hearing. Um, So I want to ask you, and I know it's hard to quantify, but this is, after all, your area of expertise. How much of the harm that we are seeing from COVID-19, if we tomorrow were to address um, vitamin D deficiency and we were to get as serious as possible about alerting people to the problem, alerting people to their special vulnerabilities if they have dark skin, or they spend a lot of time indoors, whatever their vulnerabilities may be. And we were to start distributing vitamin D with the kind of aggressiveness that we are currently pushing vaccines. How much of the harm of COVID-19 could be reduced?
1: I'll answer first, because I've, I've given this a lot of thought and even written articles about it, and the answer is all of it. So even uh, different, there have been lots of papers estimating what percentage of deaths could be prevented, and they vary between eighty percent and one hundred percent, depending on uh, the approach used there 's a recent paper that targeted fifty nanograms per milliliter that suggested that if we could get everybody to that level uh, we 'd go down to zero deaths. But I look at it from a slightly different perspective as a physicist, um, particularly with an understanding of exponential processes and uh, this is a double exponential process uh, in, a, in a pandemic because you've got the exponential process of viral replication within the body, and then you've got the exponential process at the method, sort of macro level of spreading through the community. And um, In any exponential process, if you can uh, add a prophylactic that lowers the transmission rate, so lowers R effectively, which everybody's now familiar with, uh, which is nice. If you can push R below zero, Uh, which is pretty easy to do. Even if you reduce um, by a small amount, it has a very big impact in terms of the end number uh, when you're dealing with exponential processes. And the effect of vitamin D is so strong that you would wipe out the pandemic if everybody was sufficient because there wouldn't be enough people. It's a bit like if you have... Excuse me, i am take a drink of water to explain this a bit. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: If you have... A dry fire, Linda and I like to talk about dry embers and tinder. um, uh, Dry tinder, yes. Exactly, it's it's a very good analogy. If you've got a a fire, uh, or rather a fire that's about to be made of dry tinder blocks that are all stacked together, um, you've got different strategies you can use to stop that from catching fire. One is to move all the blocks apart, social distancing, uh, or you can spray the wood uh, to keep it damp and and then the fire doesn't catch. And vitamin D is basically like just keeping the wood damp, so that the fire doesn't catch. So even if there's a bit burning somewhere, if, as long as you can get most people to a, a healthy level of green, where the wood is green, then the fire just goes out naturally.
0: So um, uh, I believe I understood your explanation the following way. You have two exponential processes, viral replication inside the body, which is going to be a correlate of how sick you get and you've got the exponential process involved in the spread and the point is vitamin d works in both ways it causes the spread to be greatly reduced and it causes the degree of sickness to be reduced in individuals and the combination of both of these reductions is enough to bring uh, r sufficiently below one that it will eventually go extinct
1: yeah and that 's what normally happens in, season, in, in in summer the effects the combined effects of UV destroying viruses in in the air plus the improved host response drives are well below uh, that value and then it dies out until winter starts and then there 's always a pool of uh, viruses somewhere because you know it's, it's zoonotic and it's it's in different animals and we don't know really which species it, it crosses because the studies that look at zoonotic transmission are based on lab animals and their their host response is completely different to wild animals or animals in a food market in china you know you just, you really need to look at different populations to understand that
0: well that's a very uh, terrifying scenario that you paint um you know well
1: it's also why the vaccine program is dangerous and 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 you know i'm not you know Linda and i are both pro vaccines in general as are you um yep. we've taken every vaccine under the sun and we'll continue to do so as long as we we'll believe Taking asleep. vaccines
2: against diseases most people have never yeah. heard of just vaccinated <laughs> my dog
1: a few weeks ago but the reason the program for zoonotic diseases, is like or any respiratory disease which easily transmits uh, between species, the human population represents 10% of the total reservoir because it's in wild animals, it's in food markets and chickens and pigs. We have swine flu, we've had bird flu um, and you can't, you're not going to immunize all of those animals as well. So I've heard doctors arguing that we need to get to 90% because that means that it's totally controlled. But if you then you know, multiply with that by 0.1, because we're only 10% of the total population, you see the fallacy of, of, of that argument. We're never going to wipe it out that way. The only way we're going to get rid of it is if we get our um, our host response healthy. And the way to do that is through uh, good nutrition lifestyle um, and not, you know, not depending on solutions that are expensive, that don't really work or that have a limited life because evolution is very clever at getting around uh, whatever technology we create to stop it.
0: Well, again, I, I think this is a very terrifying scenario. I mean, if you were, let's say in the pharmaceutical industry and you were depending on this new market to continue to allow you to, I don't know, uh, pay the mortgage on your new boat or whatever it is that's <laughs> driving this. But right. um, but yes, for the rest of us, it's a very delightful prospect that we actually might right. have the tools at our disposal to at least drive this down to a level where it is um, extremely well managed the way we could say of something like plague or rabies in the first world where we never encounter these things. Think- um, but driving it extinct would be uh, even more delightful. So, it- we're
1: well, driving it back. Right. I mean, we have coronaviruses all the time, and most of them are completely innocuous. People get them and don't even realize. This one, obviously, everybody is it, is treating as if it's something that's always fatal, and that just isn't the case. Of course, it kills people with comorbidities very easily, and we believe that's because they're vitamin D deficient. It's not the only reason. Uh, I I think of it as the the sort of um, the breastplate of immunity, you know, you can have other chinks in your armor that go missing for whatever reason, but if the breastplate's missing, you're wide open, you know, and it's just like, just get that in place, make sure that's protected, uh, and you'll probably be okay.
2: Now, this virus is not going to go extinct, and this is one of the frustrating things that I've seen with the public health response, is that they keep on promising the public, if you do this, if you do that, if you do that, COVID-19 will go away, as if The fact that we are more virtuous as a society somehow influences what this virus is going to do. The virus does not care about whether or not you care about your neighbors or not. The the virus just does what viruses do. And this particular virus has been found in many animals, including wild animals. Anytime, as soon as you discover that a virus also has a animal reservoir, you know it will never be extinct. Smallpox yeah. had no animal reservoir, and that is why we could drive it to be extinct.
0: So, so. polio
2: has no animal reservoir. if fever has I, animal I, reservoir, it'll never be
1: extinct.
0: So I, I wanna, I wanna ask you about this because I've been tracking this uh, pretty carefully and I'm very cautious about saying we can't drive it extinct because although that is quite possible, I don't know of the piece of evidence that tells us that. Now it sounds to me like you're drawing a very clear line that if animal reservoir then extinction is impossible. But um the animal reservoir you must be pointing to is white-tailed deer?
2: No, there are that that's the problem is there are multiple wild animals. Now, hold animal on. Reservoirs. You may
0: there's, you may you may be there's. telling me something I don't know, but uh as far as I understand it, we have seen this virus uh move between minks and yes. ferrets, but mm-hmm. these are Domestic populations. There is a single Wild. case, as far as I know, of a mink that has shown that it has contracted uh, SARS-CoV-2, but it was a mink in close proximity to a domestic population. Um, is there that are in many
1: Utah?
2: because in Utah they have minks too. Uh,
0: multiple so it's not minks. Just may, no, California. you may, you may be telling me something that's more up to date than I know.
2: Right. Are you telling Denmark, me? It was a meat. It was a mink farm.
0: A mink farm. Yep. We've seen that. But in
2: Utah, there were wild minks that had uh, SARS-CoV-2. More than one? Yes. And once okay. you get it into a wild population, it can go anywhere. And well. you cannot possibly immunize wild, every wild animal.
1: And also, we haven't tested all the animals. So there are too many to test. So we only have a very limited view of what's actually happening in the real world. Right. So my, my point would be, we don't need to drive it extinct. We need to make sure that it's not a threat. And if it can be, if it can be shrunk down into something that's no longer scary and terrifying and doesn't make people ill and, and doesn't do the rounds every year, which is absolutely possible, um, then uh, we won't need to worry about it anymore.
0: Sure. I, I agree with this completely. I mean, at the level that we've got plague controlled, uh, I think we could all well, breathe influenza, pretty easily. For
1: example, we, we deal with influenza every year, and I think people Probably don't realise we've we've been vaccinating against influenza since 1945. To what end? I don't. That hasn't made a single dent in what happens uh, globally. It's just made a lot of money for people who make those vaccines, and the vaccines are frequently. Which is part of why I was so sceptical about these vaccines. Is it's famous in uh, medical circles that the vaccine efficacy that's touted by the trials that are run are usually 90 95 percent and some years the actual real world efficacy is as low as three percent and it can vary by geography um so if you if you don't need those vaccines and instead you can help people by uh, making sure their immune system just works properly in the first place that obviously is going to take a lot a huge industry out Uh, And I think that's why we're seeing some nefarious behavior trying to suppress vitamin D messages. And and those those actions have been going on for a very long time. I came into this uh, March 2020, but I'm in touch, as is Linda, with people who've been campaigning for more than a decade and failing to get the message uh, through for some reason. And there's a lot of... So assumptions so. in that community that it, it's because if people really knew that vitamin D worked, then many medicines would suddenly be under threat because it it affects so many different diseases it's not just covid it's cancers it's you know, all sorts of uh, autoimmune diseases, psoriasis, asthma eczema name a disease it's probably something to do with vitamin D
2: I think it's important, going back to the basic messages of your dark horse videos is It's important to say we're not saying that vitamin D is the only thing that you need to do to be healthy. No, vitamin D is a huge yeah. part of it, and I believe that if you know the studies have shown that if your vitamin D level is fifty nanograms per milliliter or above, your chances of getting COVID nineteen drop down to a very municipal level. And if you do get it, you're likely to get such a mild case that you're not going to be passing it along to anyone else. Certainly not going to be hospitalized and that kind of thing. But I think it's important to add to that, that our modern lifestyles have other reasons why we're destroying our immune health. Uh, Melatonin is recommended partly because we look at screens too late at night and we don't get enough sleep at night. And uh, not getting enough sleep is hard on your immune system. In addition, you need to eat a balanced diet. Vitamin D is unique in that it is the only thing that's called a vitamin that you cannot get from a uh, healthy, varied diet. Uh, People talk about zinc, magnesium, vitamin C, uh, omega-3, fatty acids, um, uh, selenium. And uh, you can look those up and, and see whether or not you're likely to be deficient in those. But for most people, they can get those things through their food. It depends. You know, for instance, selenium is available in the Western Hemisphere, not so much in the Eastern Hemisphere. Um, zinc is available if you eat eggs or meat, but if you're a, a vegetarian, you might have trouble getting it. Uh, magnesium is difficult to obtain if you're on acid-reducing medications. Um, so you know, you have to look at your own personal risk factors. But vitamin D, almost everyone has a vitamin D deficiency. The only exception are those people that uh, uh, Ruff mentioned earlier who have the truly indigenous diet where they're eating almost exclusively uh, uh, fresh caught fish or uh, smoked fish or, uh, you know, it's the cold water fatty fish or fresh game. Other than that, you're likely to be deficient.
0: If I can just uh, put this back in, in my framework the the thing that distinguishes vitamin d in addition to its um, broad implication in, in many different processes in the body if i understand you correctly both hormonal signaling which is signaling between cells at a great distance and cell to cell signaling in within a tissue am i correct it's implicated yeah, in yeah and even
2: within the cell signaling within,
0: within, the, within
1: the cell, cell. so so called autocrine and paracrine activity it's not just endocrine which is the hormonal.
0: The hormonal, right. So uh, that's one thing that distinguishes it is, is its relevance to a wide range of fundamental processes. The other thing that distinguishes it is for people who have the luxury of being able to eat something like a balanced diet, a diet that looks more like an ancestral diet. We don't tend to have deficiencies vitamin d is the exception because this isn't the mechanism through which our ancestors got vitamin d the mechanism the ancestors got it from is the sun and so the model that yes i should behave more like my ancestors in this regard because it will mean i won't be deficient in things that are important that model is right but the problem is it isn't through diet because of the unique way vitamin d comes to us
1: yeah Exactly. If you want to live like your ancestors you have to move to the equator and not wear clothes and be outside
0: all day <laughs> <laughs> right or or you you know uh, uh,
1: or,
2: or in- gain weight all, if you live farther north, you also don't wear many clothes and and gain weight throughout the summer until the right. until the winter and gain muscle mass as you work yeah. hard and then in the winter, Allow your muscles to atrophy and your weight to all come off of you as you gradually come close to so formation in spring.
0: One theoretical way to do it. Um, I would point out that uh, in Heather and my recent book, A Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century, we basically argue that there are lots of places that going back to a, pr- a previous way of existing is impossible for us moderns. But there's generally a way you can modify uh, your modern life to restore the health that would derive from it. And so, you know, having the Dminder app or some other app on your phone that tells you when uh, is a good time to make vitamin D and then deliberately exposing yourself to the sun and banking that vitamin D yeah. uh, during the summer is a good mechanism. And then supplementing during the winter so that uh, you correct for the... The underproduction. These are, these are viable yeah, ways. If you're living
1: further north than forty degrees, I would recommend take supplements all year round, but just take more during winter, um, because modern lifestyle just doesn't expose you to enough sun. Even if you uh, wanted to, you know, even if you're in, in the sun, you, you generally just don't get enough to get your levels up and keep them up. Um, but earlier, you, you you asked about the the you know the I think the balance of risk really between exposing yourself to sun, which is uh, a cancer risk. So there's, that's got to be weighed up against the, uh, the benefit of, of uh, vitamin D. So, um, you know, moderate amounts of sun, you don't want to burn for, for sure. Right. It's safer to get it through uh, the oral form, but it is better to get it. You, so you, it, it takes several weeks to raise your serum levels if you take it um, orally. Uh, in pill form, but if you get it from the sun, full body exposure, you can raise your serum levels in a few hours, I believe. So I only discovered two days ago. I didn't actually know that, so. um.
2: So, uh, yeah, the elephant in the room is the uh, melanoma issue. And, you know, what's always the the pushback when you say, oh, we need to spend more time in the sun is, oh, but what about melanoma? And Grassroots Health has done some excellent studies on that, as have some other people. There's some good published documents that show that the problem with melanoma is not exposure to the sun it's exposure to too much sun too soon so if you don't get enough sun exposure to burn you just get enough sun exposure so you develop a little bit of pinkness that goes away as soon as you go indoors that does not pose a higher risk to melanoma and in fact The people with the higher vitamin D levels, even if they achieve it from the sunlight rather than from supplementation, have a lower melanoma rate than the people who have a lower vitamin D level. Because vitamin D regulates your immune system and helps protect you from all cancers, including melanoma. So the way you get melanoma is actually that your son is shy. You don't have any tan at all. And then you go out and binge on your spring break beach trip. And and blister, yeah, and, and and burn, and that's those are the people who are, are more susceptible to melanoma. So the way to avoid melanoma is actually to control your level of exposure to, vit- to uh, vitamin D from the sun, so that you increase your tolerance without ever burning.
0: Yep, yeah. but it, it's, also, it just- it's also
1: important for people to be aware that you can completely uh, expose yourself to, to the sun enough to get a tan and burn and still get no vitamin D if you're at the wrong time of day or if That's you're at right. the wrong location or wrong time of year uh, because it's, the, it's this tiny amount of the range, uh, uh, about 300 nanometers in wavelength of UVB, that target that specifically breaks cholesterol and breaks this ring and allows you to start synthesizing uh the, inter- the, the the pro hormone um but that's just not very available in sunlight it's 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 less than one percent of all uh all uv actually so right so yeah um, that
2: uva that's giving you a beautiful tan at 10 in the morning yeah. there in oregon is not going to give you any uvb yep so, so this so is this is a this is a reason are, yeah, yeah. well
1: we, take, we generally recommend for, for healthy adults take uh, four thousand international units um, every day, uh, uh, yeah. and you can take that all year round. I take more because I tested my blood levels, and I had even after taking 4,000 for 18 months, I didn't reach su- well, the minimum criterion of sufficiency. So something in my body isn't metabolizing it well or, or digesting it well. So I actually take 10,000, and in deep winter, I take 20,000. Um, but but I don't recommend that to, as a general recommendation for other people. If you if you're not sure, test your levels and find out.
0: So So I think there are uh, four recommendations that we can derive from this. One is you might download an app that allows you to figure out what sunlight is useful and what is not. So you can train your mind to spot the useful moments in the day where you are, where you could make vitamin D and alter your behavior with respect to the sun in order to do it without burning, of course, because that's where your melanoma risk comes from. Uh, two would be to supplement, uh, if you are above 40 degrees latitude and probably oh, 40 degrees latitude, you said all year round. Um, but probably in light of the safety of exposure to vitamin D, um, and the potential benefits that come from it airing in the direction of assuming that you are deficient and supplementing is probably the way to go. Uh, Especially if your
1: lifestyle keeps you out of the sun and you wear sunblock and things like that, then, you know, you're not getting well, it from the sun. So,
2: Yeah, I would recommend that anyone who can afford the two or three cents a day that it is for vitamin D supplements, take them year round no matter where they live. Because yeah. uh, anybody who's uh, hearing this recommendation is probably living a modern lifestyle and yeah. just isn't yeah. taking the time to get the yeah. consistent vitamin D And vitamin D has to be produced consistently because it doesn't have a super long half
0: life. Yeah. I think I said four recommendations. I only spot three at the moment. The third one is to be suspicious of any public health authority that is not recommending vitamin D in the midst of a pandemic against which this uh, vitamin D is clearly effective.
2: Yeah, that's a good
0: I mean, I, I just uh, don't. Especially I,
2: I, when they tell you that they take it themselves, but they won't recommend yeah. it to the public.
1: Yeah, right. And it's, we know that to be the case here in the UK as well. I mean, you know, I've heard that. Uh, yeah, it's it's them drinking champagne and telling the masses to drink water. It's uh,
0: yes, uh, it it is a stunning double standard, and you know, the thing I have to keep reminding myself of is. The numbers here are so great. We're talking about huge amounts of harm and death that are coming from the absence of this recommendation. Every day that this recommendation is not out, it is, it is causing families to find themselves in grief at the loss of somebody who did not need to die. And, uh, it's unconscionable. I, I, I cannot believe that we are having a podcast in which the reality is this stark. And yet, day after day, one expects to see the recommendation finally emerge, and it's just silence.
2: Well, you can imagine the frustration that Gruff and I have had, because both of us We've been dealing with this since March 2020. Yeah, I was going to say, for me, it was February. The yeah. end of February, right. there was actually a vitamin D article in a Ghanaian newspaper right. that I read, and it made me start looking. And as soon as I started looking, I found all kinds of good evidence for vitamin D. And I've just been so frustrated and wanting to shake people. I was like, all these people are dying for lack of knowledge. Why can't someone tell them the truth? And we wrote this vitamin D for all thing and sent it to all the government officials, had people send it to them. We assumed that our word would get out. At least I thought surely someone will pick up on this crickets. I've done podcasts in January all this stuff. So we're just so frustrated yeah. that the message just doesn't seem to get out. So any of your listeners who are hearing this, please don't just take this for yourselves. Share it with your friends, your family, your coworkers, anybody you can.
1: Yeah, there's, there's another message, an important message that I'd like to. Um, hopefully, we have a, 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 an audience that's already receptive. But the, you know, if people were cynical or skeptical at the beginning, I understand that. I was, I was probably that person too about you know stories like vitamin c and zinc because that never worked to help my colds and flus the magic addition of vitamin d that finally did that uh but i was very cynical and didn't believe it uh, at the beginning so that's totally fine but you know pascal's wager you know it's not harmful it's probably good for lots of other things So even if you don't believe it uh, 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 do take it seriously but if you look on the internet and google about vitamin d you will almost certainly find the negative studies are being highlighted and promoted. The media have had a complete double standard about, we did get lots of very positive coverage in the first year of the pandemic from media, um, which was immediately then overturned by the actions of the local health agencies here in the UK, who, for reasons that remain opaque to me, acted to suppress all of our messaging. Uh, there was a paper released by Susan at Al who um, used the word uh, there are evidenced health risks for excessive vitamin D intakes and then didn't provide any references uh, to back up that statement. Every other statement in the paper is backed up with, uh, with citations, but that one is uh, conspicuously absent of them. And then recommend against taking the levels that we recommend and only taking the RDA. turns out that Susan Lanham-Mew is also a panellist and advisor on the... Um, the Nutrition Advisory Committee in the UK, uh, so very much I presume wanted to control. Uh, uh, maybe it was the "not invented here" syndrome. I think uh, going on there, um, but why? You know, give it. The, the, the level of evidence is so vast now, but if you look on the internet, you will occasionally see apparently negative studies, and, and it's important that we. Uh, show people that they've been debunked so if you read the biobank study by hasty et al that was science fiction we've and we published a letter you can find it online that that goes into the the litany of errors that they made in that paper but there are other studies for example uh, mendelian randomization or mr studies you might read some of those that apparently found uh, no evidence but mendelian randomization just couldn't find an effect the, um, the, that particular technique just isn't suitable for vitamin D. I'm not going to go into the details of why, but uh, um, it's important to dis- you know to be able to distinguish the wheat from the chaff.
0: Yep, I think it is, also, it is also it is very sorry. important that we also extrapolate from this, and I think vitamin D is playing two roles in the story, and I want people to get both of them. One is for your own well-being and for the well-being of those that you care about. This is the cheapest, safest, most effective intervention. And there's no reason to expose yourself to more risk by remaining deficient uh, when you could remedy that. But the other thing is once you look into this, and if you have doubts, uh, we will have links to your papers in the description. Take a look at these papers, follow them. Look at the the studies that say vitamin D has no effect and look at the analysis of why those papers are flawed. See if you don't see the same picture. And if you do see the same picture, vitamin D is a highly effective remedy. The side effects of supplementing vitamin D are positive. The risk if somehow the analysis is wrong is minimal. If all of those things are true, and public health authorities across the world are failing to recommend this week after week, month after month, as they are disrupting civil liberties in order to control the virus through social manipulation in a way that isn't effective, if that's all true, then what else are they not doing right? And start to look at all of the things that you've been told are uh, simply clear, in the evidence these things don't work aren't an alternative etc and ask yourself if they've got vitamin d wrong how do i know that the things they're telling me on these other fronts are also not incorrect
1: good yeah. point very good point. And, and why uh, why the double standards why is the, the a new antiviral that's um, got one study by behind it suddenly being approved by the fda and that's not which is which is unprecedented. I mean, a single study is never evidence for anything, and yet, you know, four decades of evidence behind vitamin D is being rejected. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, um, why, why the um, double the standards? Only, the only reason to explain that can be money. It's got to be being driven by profit. Um, so,
0: yep, I agree. I agree with you. The, the, the double standards across the board are the indicator that this is yeah. about something other than your health or public health.
1: Yeah. And while the government still citing cases, which is a meaningless metric and has been since the beginning, you can't you can't give enough context. It's not even cases; they measure positive tests, which is not the same. And the number of tests changes, but they never divide by the number of tests to tell you the fraction of positive tests that's happening. It's all scare tactics.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: All right, uh, Linda. Did you have one last thing you wanted to say?
2: No, that's okay. So,
0: all right. Um, well, uh I think we've arrived at uh at the natural conclusion here. It's really a very stark story. Um I I know people probably don't think vitamin D is a very exciting topic, but I think all three of us and Heather as well have had the experience of happening on to the story and then once you begin to see just how central this is to the story that is now controlling our lives and has been for the last year and a half, um, it's almost impossible to look away.
1: Yeah. And, and I've heard that sentiment so many times. It's once, once people wake up and see the pattern, it's impossible to unsee it. You see it everywhere and it suddenly explains everything. Um, we obviously saw that back in March so it's been it's been a long frustrating maddening journey for us but it's a it's a pleasure to finally uh, have more traction and people you know when when we read um, Heather's uh, po- uh, blog post and and the admission of the, your, your term, uh, change of mind of vitamin D it was a very exciting day to for us because we felt the um All the efforts of last year had sort of petered out. You know, we did so much good work and there's a community of hundreds of brilliant scientists working and doctors working on this. So we're very, very grateful that you're you're able to um, help us get the message out there.
2: Uh, One other thing that I had wanted to say is that as your viewers look at the evidence for anything with COVID-19, they need to keep in mind that the majority of journals are uh, Funded by advertising, and the advertising is almost exclusively coming from big pharma, and that is going to influence the editorial policy. It just has to.
1: Oh, and, and fact checkers are also funded by pharma, as I just read recently.
2: And and even a journal that is open source journal, and most of its uh, funding then comes from the authors, is still in order to stay in that community. Continue to be Medline indexed. All those kinds of things. There's a cadre, and you have to be part of that culture to continue to have relevance. So there's a huge amount of pressure on editors to stay to to continue to to uh, uh, draw within the lines.
0: Yeah, the the number of ways through which the corruption affects what we come to understand as uh, uh, as scientific information is. Many And I think the, the lay public has not been served well by the insistence that the dictates of public health authorities are simply uninflected science. It's not the case. And uh, it's time that in the interest of our protecting ourselves from this disease and every other that we um, ushered pharma out of the path of sense making so that we can begin to figure out where we are and what works and how to be healthier
1: yeah
0: all right uh gruff linda this has been tremendous i um our pleasure It's
2: our pleasure thank you so much for having yeah. us uh, it it's, was really refreshing that you allowed us to have so much time yeah. to speak
0: well it's really uh like it's a it's a remarkable story and i i hope that people hear it far and wide and they realize how much of their medical well-being is actually under their control here yeah. that's really the the story that you've brought to light and, and I'm, I'm very grateful for it all right be well everyone
1: thank we you bye bye bye